So thanks everybody for attending. Um, this is a really kind of weird webcast again. Um, it's brought to you by Black Hills Information Security. It's also brought to you by Wild West Hacking Fest. That's our conference in San Diego. Backdoors and Breaches, which good luck getting a copy unless you're gonna be at ShmooCon. Uh, how many copies have you taken to ShmooCon, Jason? Uh, 600 and I will also be teaching people how to play while I'm there. And if you're thinking 600 copies at ShmooCon, I can just swing by at any time at my leisure to get a copy. You're wrong. Um, you need to get to the table early. And it's also brought to you by AI Hunter. So with that, let me jump back over here and let's get started. So sacred cash cow tipping in 2020. Um, and it, any of the testers that are on with me, just feel free to jump in and kind of comment on this. I really feel um, like this was the year that things kind of changed. Um, previous years, everything worked all the time. Like you could take default Metasploit Meterpreter, export it, and you could run it on a system with Symantec for like three years and it worked. And this year you could take default Metasploit Meterpreter and run it on a system with Symantec and it would still work. But we aren't talking much about Symantec or McAfee, but a lot of the next, next generation EDR products. And what we've seen is a lot of these products when properly configured are actually kind of tough to get by. So a lot of what you're going to see here is taking advantage of configuration issues where people allow the execution of PS1 files or certain scripts or allow you to execute PowerShell and then paste your script in and execute it directly from the command line. You're going to see a lot of those weird tricks where you're kind of taking advantage of a configuration problem. And there's a lot of configuration problems that exist. So we're not really it's really difficult. And like I said, Joff and, and Kelsey and, and, and Jordan and Kent, I really would say that it's no longer an issue of just bypass this product, right? Like when we're going through this webcast, there's no magic silver bullet um, in a lot of scenarios that just works every single time because we'll have things that'll work for a few months and then they stop working. And Darren's going to talk a little bit about that a little bit later, but it really seems like we're taking advantage of kind of a misconfiguration. Is that kind of how you all see it as well? Yeah, so I'll, ju I'll jump in. Um, I think, John, y y you're right on target. Um, you know, we started we started the cash cow tipping years ago and we were like, OK, yeah, we can obfuscate some executable material and it's going to bypass um, product X, Y and Z. And uh, we can, you know, run it through sort of a matrix of different products and, and find out what it what it hits and what it doesn't hit. And the world has frankly changed. Um, in fact, we're seeing a lot more application whitelisting uh, pop up. So therefore, even even delivering an executable is just not a, uh, a an option in so many cases. And then um, the, the products, frankly, have just gotten a whole lot better. They've moved away from the, the signature approach. They're moving much more towards behavioral approaches. And uh, the landscape has significantly changed. So the nature of this webcast is changing along with it. Yeah. And as I said on the slide, it's good and it's bad. I think it's really, really good that the tools are getting better, but I also think it's bad because it reminds me of some of the earlier, not your earlier days, like 2003, four, five, six timeframe with traditional antivirus, where there were so many little configuration tweaks um, that you could enable and disable that you could completely neuter your endpoint security product very easily. And we are in fact seeing organizations make those mistakes. So we're gonna talk a lot about those. Do we have David on today? Can't remember if David was going to join. All right, David, I will be your slide presenter, your Vanna White, if you will, and I'll pass it over to you talking about kind of alternate interpreters that tend to be laying around on computer systems and how to adva take advantage of them. So this is less of an initial access uh, sort of technique and more getting around the network after initial access. Uh, normally, I'm gonna, I use some of the things that Joff is gonna talk about uh, for getting initial access into an environment, but what I've noticed over the past year is just poking around the system, I can find other opportunities to execute code that will get past things like CrowdStrike, Carbon Black, and other AV vendors. And typically what I find is Python and Ruby interpreters running around on the machine. And if you go to the next slide, you might ask how they, how they actually get there. So it's, pretty rare, but sometimes Python is already installed, and then I can uh, generate a payload, get it onto the machine, and execute that to get C2 from, say, a secondary machine. Typically where I've seen this over the past year has been, you know, one of the things that I'll normally do when I get on a network is I'll look for opportunities to pivot that don't require uh, code execution. So I'll look for terminal servers and things like that, uh, common use machines, uh, and if I can get onto one of those, 
I can run something through that Python interpreter uh, bypassing both the EDR and the AV on the machine. A, a more interesting opportunity is unregistered interpreters. And what I found is if I go poking around in program files and program files x86, I can find copies of Ruby and Python laying around on the machine that are being used by third-party products and were installed as part of that initial installation and <coughs> execute those environments and get a payload to run through Python or Ruby. And I've done it several times over the, over the past year. I kind of toyed with uh, putting together a blog post up specifically about extended living off the land and looking for these opportunities. And uh, you but should. Yeah, it was it was kind of rare. I didn't know what products to talk about. That was kind of the problem. So the other opportunities that might present themselves, the Microsoft Store. If you're not blocking access to the Microsoft Store, you should be. If if I have enough privileges and I can install something from the Microsoft Store, that's probably going to be bad. Uh, the other opportunity that I've seen several times over the past year is Software Center. One of the first things I'm going to do when I get on a machine, I'm going to go check out Software Center or check out the control panel and see if Software Center is in installed and then see what's being advertised to me as a standard user that I can install with standard user permissions. On several engagements, I've found really great opportunities there where I can do things like install Wireshark as a standard user, or I can install the SysInternals tool suite because it's being advertised to the entire domain. And of course, Python and Ruby might live there because the developer and, need access to them. And David, somebody asked a question. I think it's a valid question. I think we got to clarify. This does actually get past application whitelisting because in many situations, what you're seeing is the application whitelist has already profiled the system. These interpreters are installed with another application. So you're merely riding on top of an authorized whitelist application in these scenarios, right? Absolutely. So once the, the actual legitimate tool has to use that executable for some legitimate purpose, we're just abusing it at that point. It's really amazing when you can find it. So of course we wanna tell you how to fix them obviously restrict alternate interpreters in your environment if you have developers who need them sure get them to those folks but don't let anybody install python or ruby in your environment in addition make sure you're inspecting program files and program files x86 and you know what's there in one particular instance it was a security tool that was installing ruby on the box that allowed us to actually get remote c2 from the machine bypassing carbon black and all the other protections that are on there. The other things you wanna do is restrict access to the Microsoft Store, review the things that you're publishing to your entire network through SCCM. If it's something that a normal end user doesn't need, eliminate it from that list. And then of course, restrict granting of administrator privileges. And I think we need to clarify again, this isn't just that Python is installed or Ruby is installed like it would normally be, like program files, x86, Ruby or Python. This is an application, like you would have you know, application X and then it has a bin directory and in that bin directory is a version of Python or Ruby that the application self bundles. So it isn't just a matter of looking at installed programs, it's actually going deeper into the program files folders for all the other programs that are installed to be able to identify if Ruby or Python or something like that is installed, correct? Yeah, exactly. So, all right, very cool. So that's a fun one. And yes, you need to do a blog post on this one because I think it would be a very good one. So. Now we have Kelsey uh, talking about a configuration issue that we run into from time to time on Carbon Black. Kelsey, are you on and your mic working? Yep, I'm on, can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you. Excellent. So like you said, I'm going to be talking about a configuration issue. And like you said previously, more and more what I'm finding when I'm trying to bypass things and what's been really effective is just configuration issues. So the tool itself, especially when you're talking about something like Carbon Black, there's a lot of different ways that you can configure that. And I know it's very difficult to try and specify different things that you want to do. 
So in this case, I was working with a healthcare industry company and they were running several different kinds of tools. So Carbon Black, Windows Defender, other kinds of tools. They were catching a lot of the different things I was doing. It was really cool to see. So this was a more mature environment. And I did find that I was still able to run things like PowerShell. And what surprised me is that I was also allowed to download PS1 files, which is not usually something I see in combination. Usually I just see across the board, I just can't download PS1 files. But it didn't seem to matter where these PS1 files were coming from, if I was copy and pasting them onto the desktop, if I was downloading them from GitHub, any sort of PS1 files seemed to be allowed. So now, gonna... I also want to kind of ask a question on this. In this particular scenario, and I, I think we've had a handful of these over the past year, the it's not easy for some of these organizations just to block PowerShell across the organization for some org uh, for some organizations, correct? Like they genuinely do need to have PowerShell execute and they haven't done a very good job of restricting it, correct? Oh, absolutely. Um, and this was one of the more interesting ones that I'd seen because a lot of times once I get the PS1 file on the desktop, I can do whatever I want to it. It's just the matter of getting it onto the desktop. So this was the first time that I'd really seen that it didn't matter what the PS1 file was, I just couldn't execute it no matter what. So, and, and Kels, yeah. real quick, a bunch of people are asking specific versions of Carbon Black or any of them. Is it protect, so, defense, response, really, or all of them? Right. I really think this is just the way that they had it configured. I don't think it was, had anything to do with what version of Carbon Black it was. It was just the configuration of Carbon Black that this yep. specific customer had. So. Like I said, it didn't matter what the files were because initially I thought maybe it was catching on some some thing inside the PS1 files. So a lot of times if there's a lot of like comments, antivirus will say, no, you can't run that. We, we recognize that as a bad PS1, but it was all PS1s. It didn't matter how I was executing them. So if it double clicked, if I tried to run them from command line. So even like PowerShell's import module, which usually you're not, executing the PS1 directly, so it's usually fine as long as you just grab it and import it from within PowerShell, even that was getting blocked. But then, next slide. Okay, <laughs> <Yeah>. there we go. <laughs> so, but then I just took the contents of the PS1 file and just pasted them onto command line. And from there, I could do whatever I wanted to. It's a little bit painful of a process because you do have to take out all the new lines and make sure it can execute in one line but for what I needed from that point in the test, it was working just fine for me. And yep. that's because Carbon Black no longer saw it as a PS1 file. It was now just something I was running from command line. And I noticed this initially because it didn't seem that anything I was running when I was typing it into PowerShell, nothing there was getting blocked. So I was going through line by line running my code to try and see where it was getting caught at. And then I noticed it's not getting caught anywhere. It's just because it's in that PS1 file. Uh, and later, I, I, I want to kind of jump in real quick, Kelsey. We got a bunch of people that are freaking out. They're like, "Well, is this mean Carbon Black isn't any good? What about Palo Alto Traps? Is it better?" And I, I just want to reiterate: this isn't saying, "Hey, Palo Alto is better or Silence is better." What we're saying is, this is a configuration issue. We've had a test. We've had a number of tests where this would never happen on the test ever. But in yep, this particular sure. environment, they have allowed the PS1 files to be downloaded or they've allowed PowerShell to even be invoked at all. So we're once again coming back to the, if you're testing, this is a configuration issue that you need to look for, correct? Correct. Uh, this is a very rare thing. I hadn't thought to try it before. Usually what's getting caught by antivirus is some specific line in the PS1 file. So if I can run the PS1 file, I can usually run it via command line or anything else. If I can't run the PS1 file, it's usually blocked across the network. But in this case, because the configuration was set up just to look for PS1 files, I was allowed to do things like copy and paste the contents. The other thing that I found out later on, if you're aware of invoke expression, PowerShell's module invoke expression, what you can do from that is pull down any PS1 file basically off of the internet. So GitHub and then go to the raw version of a PS1 file you can just download that directly into memory. And that, in this case, also bypassed this block on PS1 files because it was never touching the system itself. Yep. Very cool. All right, thank you. And I've, I've got Rick. Now, is Rick still on? Because he said he, he showed up and he was kind of scary in the background. 
And then he said earlier he wasn't going to be able to be on the show today. But I see Rick's still here. Rick, are you with us still? All right. So I'll take Rick's. So what's really, really cool about this is the idea of using different tools. In this particular scenario, Rick was using a bypass technique for Cisco AMP, and he was using Kodiak C2. Now, if we actually go to the website for Kodiak C2, there is a large number of different options as far as configuring it and running it. And Rick is running specifically in the WMIC method for this particular tool, but it's a neat tool. And the reason why I think that this is somewhat important is whenever you have a tool or a backdoor or an implant and it first comes out, many, many antivirus engines won't detect it, right? Like right out of the gate, they just ignore it. And we saw this initially with like PowerShell Empire. We even saw it with some things that were being kicked out of the social engineering toolkit. And as a tool gets more and more popular, all of a sudden they write a bunch of signatures that that particular tool would be able to be caught with. And with this particular tool, he just found another C2 implant tool called Kodiak, which is pretty cool. And with this tool, you have a number of stagers, you have a number of implants and bypass techniques that are built in. Now, as I mentioned in Rick's scenario, he's using the WMIC version. Now with this, I jump in really, really quickly. So he outputs the stager and the output format is basically WMIC and then basically runs that once again from the operating system. So he goes WMIC, OS get, and then it downloads the XML. And then of course, once it pulls it down, it executes it and then you have a reverse connection. And this really boils down to if an attacker can ever get to command line access on a workstation, it really opens up all kinds of possibilities. And this also kind of echoes to what Kelsey just said as well. If you're trying to run a PowerShell script and you're just trying to execute the PS1 and that's not working, sometimes you can modify it and just paste it into a one-liner and then run it. If an attacker is able to get to a command line, basically the world is their oyster in many situations. Now, some people have mentioned that you can actually enable command line auditing and PowerShell auditing on your computer systems. And I probably will let uh, Kent and Jordan speak to that a little bit more because they have a class on the topic. We've done a bunch of webcasts and they know a lot more about it than I do, but it's showing the importance of actually controlling access to the underlying you know, operating system command line environments that really should not be available to your users. And this isn't just PowerShell or, w, or WMIC or CMD. You've also got to look at older versions of PowerShell. Uh, we didn't talk about it in this particular webcast, but there have been bypass techniques where you simply upload an older version of PowerShell and execute that, maybe a renamed version. And then you have the ability to bypass some of the security products that exist. And once again, I've got to reiterate this throughout this entire webcast. People are like, well, that product's doing this. What about this product? Stop. Look at this as a series of things that you can try. Look at this as a series of methodologies. Look at this as some type of inspiration of things that you can try in your own environment to try your own bypass techniques to bypass your security products as well. Do we, I don't think Michael is coming on or Rhino is coming on for this. He said I could take this one. So I'll just, I'll take this one as well. So whenever you're looking at security products, a bunch of security products are actually building on top of the existing Microsoft technology AMSI for detecting PowerShell tools in memory. Now there's a whole bunch of different AMZ bypass techniques that exist. And if you go to uh, Rasta mouses, bypass techniques, there's actually a large number of different collections that are there. You, it allows you to execute with a download cradle and then pasting it directly into the PowerShell session. Once again, very much echoing back what Kelsey was talking about at the beginning of this webcast as well. So that simple copy and paste technique actually works in many scenarios. And then of course you have full access to the computer system as well. Now, move on here, there we go. Now the silence protect bypass technique. Now this has a lot to do with whenever you've escalated privileges on a workstation. Now, for a long time, with many of the advanced EDR products that are out there today, if you got to full administrator, it was game over. You could just go in and shut off the process, or you could simply maybe use some NetSH filters to put a firewall around the process actually reporting back, and then do whatever you wanted to it. So let's talk about how if you're looking at silence and you try to do that, that can actually get a little bit more difficult for trying to shut it down and stop it from actually reporting after you've gotten escalated privileges. Once again, going back to a theme of this webcast is misconfiguration. Don't 
allow your users to have local administrator. Test your distributions to make sure that escalation procedures and like different techniques do not work on your Windows 10 computer systems. Because once again, if I can get access to the command line or if I can get access and run a system on this computer, then it's pretty much just a matter of time before it's game over. So with Silence Protect, it was blocking suspicious behavior. And in this situation, Rhino wanted to download and dump LSAS, Local Security Authority Subsystem Service. Now, the reason why you would want to dump the Local Security Authority Subsystem Service is inside of LSAS as the process. You can actually pull clear text credentials out of memory. If you're looking at, uh, if you're looking at the modules like uh, Mimikatz and of course the Meterpreter Kiwi module, which is using Mimikatz te te techniques as well, you want to pull that down pull out those clear text credentials so you don't have to go through the process of trying to crack them. However, Silence was blocking all of these different techniques. Process Explorer, Proc Dump, Task Manager just was not working. It was killing the processes and stopping it. So in this particular scenario, this came out from a Druid Ninja or Tyler Booth or Druid. Um, and this particular technique involved renaming a Silence DLL. And that's kind of interesting because Whenever you're looking at Silence and it's running, anytime you have a program that's executing, it's going to be using dynamic link libraries to execute functionality. So whenever you look at a computer program and you're actually going through and like uh, and some type of immunity debugger, you'll see it invoke functions inside of a dynamic link library. What if that dynamic link library stops existing? You're still going to have the core Silence process, right? It's going to be running, but now whenever it's trying to invoke a dynamic link library, it's going to go away. And in this situation, he took the SIMEMD def, which I'm guessing stands for Silence Memory Defense 64, which they probably should have came up with a less obvious name, but hey, whatever. And he renamed it to SIMEMDEF64.dll.backup. And in doing that, it basically neutered that process and its ability to actually look into trying to dump the memory out of the LSAS process. So here you can see, just using a task manager going into create dump file, dumping it out to a file, and then you can import that to another tool, and then you can start cracking, or not even cracking, just pulling the clear text passwords out. The other thing that was cool is whenever this was running, the silence process keeps running. And the silence process has the ability to send a notification saying, hey, someone's trying to tamper with me. Years ago, you had the ability to actually migrate your malware into the endpoint security process. And many of those endpoint security processes would then go blind because at that time they couldn't watch themselves watch themselves watching themselves watch themselves so they just basically created a sandbox and said i'm going to watch everything on this computer except my own process and in doing that created a really nice place for us to hide well a number of these different products developed protections against that so if there was tampering of the process itself it would send you an alert with this particular technique all you do at that point is it's now been neutered. It's not going to see the process tampering because the memory defense dynamic link library has been renamed or removed in this particular scenario. And as all good pen testers, and, and Michael included, he actually went through and basically put it back to the way it was so you don't have the uh, the uh, the backup one still running. So you want to fix the, the little thing that you did when you're doing your pen test on your way out. That's just part of good hygiene as well. Now, Darren, uh, I liked Darren's, uh, just a little bit on, on Darren's technique. Darren is an overachiever. Most of the uh, testers, whenever I say, hey, I need slides for you know, sacred cash cow tipping, they do it literally the night before or the morning. Darren actually got a head start. He actually got working on his a couple of weeks ago or last week, and uh, it worked great right up until the point that it didn't. So I really like Darren's session because it's kind of talking about what happens when something works and then it stops working. How are you going to modify Juke and Jive to get around these different detections? So Darren, you with us? I'm here. All right, sir. I'm handing it over to you. Take it away. All right. So I was recently on a test and I had uh, the Windows Defender Carbon Black. And I'm not sure what version of Carbon Black was on it. I just know that it was Carbon Black. So anyway, to get past it, I used a couple of blogs. So the first one, first thing I did was set up a PowerShell Empire session listener. And this one actually, there, this blog explains how to modify the settings so that it will bypass Windows Defender. 
and you can read the blogs there to modify your own version. There's also a repo down there on different GitHub that has that already done if you just want to take the shortcut. You do need to download the 3.0 beta branch for that though. So um, with that, if you put the other one is I set this up using uh, trusted certificates. So this sends the traffic out over HTTPS and with the certificates, it just makes it a little bit more challenging to see what's going on. So the traffic is encrypted. And when you do this, this actually just gets past Windows Defender. As most of you probably know, and PowerShell Empire has not been kept up recently and it gets caught by Windows Defender regularly. So I don't even think you can run PowerShell Empire straight out anymore without it getting caught by Defender. But now, I would also say that this year, Windows Defender has definitely upped its game. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, for sure. Windows Defender is almost the hardest thing to get past nowadays. <laughs> Which is basic uh, dropping on it. But that's also, I mean, Microsoft has uh, entered this game very, very, very heavily. Over, say even over the past 18 months, they've done really well. Right. I mean, now everything by default, any any malicious traffic is sent to Microsoft for analysis. So it's gotta it's gonna keep getting better too. So you were but, able to get past Windows Defender, but it was still getting caught by Carbon Black, correct? Yes. Yeah. So it this didn't work. It, it's it worked partially, but I mean, yeah, it didn't get past this. Now what this it does get past Defender. It didn't get past Carbon Black this way. So I had to do some other things, to, and this is bypassing the AMSI process as well. So there was this command that I used, and when I did this on the test, it worked fine, great. I'm getting the slides ready for this, and it stopped working. So it was kind of, I mean, it's good to see, right? I mean, <laughs> they're catching things. So this was so kind I've of interesting because this so is I've got Defender a question for you. Okay, so yeah. you basically tried this technique and it came out in um, like June, July of 2018. Yep. And correct me if I'm wrong, this technique and this blog came out in 2018. It was working for you. And in the middle of that time between it working for you and like what, like the past couple of days, yeah, all so, this was written for it. Is that right? Yeah. So this was the probably middle of December when I did this. So, yeah. and it worked. And then... Like I said, just last week it got caught. And this is a Defender that's catching it here. So yeah. this is not carbon black or anything, but Defender's not letting it run. So back so, to the drawing board. Yeah. But it was pretty easy to get past. So, you <laughs> um, go. So, so you just create a variable. We called it the first part of, the, uh, of that script. And then add it onto the rest of the script you can kind of see what I did there. Just create a variable for part of it and call it and it get pa gets past it. So while it is good that it's getting caught, it's not catching what it's doing. It's catching, it's a signature based thing. Well, and it's not, it's not like a hash based detection. You can see like what's actually being invoked and they're writing signatures for, you know, with the code itself, right? And just yeah. modifying it ever so slightly allows you to get past. And that's another theme I don't know if you remember, but a number of years ago, Brian Furman was on one of the earlier Sacred Cash Cow tippings. And all he did was basically split PowerShell into PowerShell and then L.exe, and he was able to bypass. And yeah. this is a concern that I have. I see a lot of these products doing really well, but it still seems that they write signatures for specific things within scripts and PowerShell scripts and Python to be able to detect the attacks. Yeah, and if you actually look at the original command, they are obfuscating a little bit as is. I mean, it's on the right of that, it says Amzi and at Faye, and then gold. <laughs> so they're kind of modifying it a little bit as is. Yeah. Um, I, I did play around with that, trying to break that up a little bit more, and it didn't work, so. You basically just anyway. assigned it to a variable dollar sign M then, and that's what allowed you to get past right. it. So so I just, I just, yeah. 
so this whole mess would have normally have been caught unless you actually defined it into a separately named variable and that's what actually allowed you to get past it correct yeah yep so very cool yep. very cool all right thanks oh there, wait, relaunch here you go yeah, yeah Darren, so, they asked did it get detected at all did it, it just bypassed it but did it get detected could you i don't know it, it did not get detected no they did not know that i was able to get a shell that way nice so, so. And then here's the full execution of it right there. Yep, you, I ran that same command as, as what happened, as what I had, and it got past Defender and the Carver Black that they had going. Yep. All right, thank you, sir. Yeah. All right, we're gonna hand it over to Jordan. Uh, Jordan, are you on, sir? I am curious about my audio, though. No, your audio is right. through fine. No, you sound good, you sound good. All right, excellent. Sir. Excellent. So, so these are Windows features. Yeah, not much more than Windows features we're taking advantage of again, right? We we are definitely in an environment now where endpoint protections are stronger than they were, and it's harder to do things. But uh, I just take advantage of the Windows subsystem for Linux here. It's it's easy for me to install with admin privileges, right, and then you know, deploy Meterpreter on myself with a mounted local C drive. As the, the stage comes down through this operating system, Defender products of any nature do not look at those streams. It's it's almost as if this is a trusted process in all its operations. See, and this is weird. Um, I actually played around a little bit with this early this morning. And on my Windows systems, it, it's strange. If you actually drop the Meterpreter, as an ELF, uh, executable and linkable format, Linux executable, it works. But if you try to install the Metasploit environment on Windows, like you open it up and Windows Subsystem for Linux, and then you go through the instructions to install Metasploit, Windows Defender lights up like a freaking Christmas tree and it just nukes most of the Metasploit installation. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's funny, you know, we, we've said for a long time that, oh, Windows Defender ignores wild. Windows Subsystem for Linux. And it's kind of true, but not 100%. So, yeah, I, I found that the Meterpreter as an ELF will, will work just fine. But if you actually, if I, it looks like it'll detect the initial Ruby, the actual Ruby code that it generates the ELF file from, it'll detect that, but not the ELF file. Uh, so, sorry, I just had to let you know I was playing around with this uh, actually this morning. It just doesn't make any sense. And it's, it's essentially invisible. So all processes running in this subsystem are ignored by the OS. Mm. I, I don't know how or why, but it just makes sense. So then we have a mounted C drive and I can wander around in the file system. And this one which, is, I, I would put this know, one in the category. How, how often worked, do we find this? This has worked like, this has worked for three years now, maybe four. <laughs> I can't remember. Because <laughs> I, I mean, I remember when the Windows system, subsystem for Linux came out, we immediately were like, let's run malware on it. I literally, the first thing I did was run like a netcat listener on it. Um, so it's worked ever since then as well. Um, but just another great. technique here too. This one I love. Uh, talk about the Python yeah, 3.8. This is yeah, crazy. Right, and why wouldn't you go look for the Microsoft Store as a tester? You get dropped into a network and it's got all, all these full-on defenses and everything is crazy. The Microsoft Store allows you to install trusted Microsoft binaries. So why wouldn't we drop a new Python interpreter on the system? Because I don't require admin privileges to do so. Just like Fletch said, do I need a packet capture utility? Do I want a port scanner? Do I want, who knows? Any tool of all kinds of things are in the Microsoft Store. So this should not be available to me. But this has worked on tests to establish C2 communication. Well, and it's so also we download the interpreter. The big, thing, the big thing here is it does not require admin privileges to install. So any user account can do that, yeah. right? All right, so here you exactly. go. Exactly, that is exactly right. And then we spin up our super simple Python server, Python client, deploy in the cloud, connect from the ground, and we're off and running. Full on, again, I believe this is because it is a trusted Microsoft binary, that, that Python interpreter. So when that code is run, it is essentially ignored, despite and, establishing full-on C2. And somebody uh, in the chat access or asked this question a little bit early, said, so are there any examples of malicious apps in the Microsoft Store? 
And I was like, wait for it. And I think you don't want to say that Python itself is a malicious app because that's just, it's kind of weird to say, but it does show that whenever Microsoft is kind of moving towards this store type uh, infrastructure, like we would get with Google Play or the App Store and Apple, if it's automatically trusting things that are downloaded there, that opens up all kinds of amazing possibilities for us as testers as different alternate ways to actually get additional really cool C2 and malware on computer systems as well. Agree completely. Yeah, so this, this is interesting. Again, it's, it's a feature, it's a function of the OS, it's trusted and supported. I tried to run it 10 or 12 different times yesterday so that was interesting, right? In hopes that my client would get picked up as malware, you know, establishing connection. And this happens all the time to us, right? We have something working, 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 broken. Yeah. And it didn't break. So, I, Well, and the other do? reason why we do that too is we're trying to give, whenever you're doing a test, it isn't just proving you can hack them, right? You want to give them an opportunity to detect it. And it's also easier if you write, like I tried running this thing, I clicked on it 150 times. So we can go to the logs and look for that string of the same thing executing 150 times. Now maybe you can write a SIM signature for it, but it still wasn't detected. It didn't show up on their radar at all. That is accurate. So thank you. Yep. All right. Now we have Joff. Hold, uh, hold one quick, John. We have kind oh, of important sure, question. Yeah. Have these all have these bypasses we've got been disclosed to the vendors? Um, so okay, so this gets into an interesting philosophical conversation. Um, understand that this is not an Easter egg hunt. If you actually go through a lot of these different techniques, like if I go up here, let's go to uh, Darren's. So this particular technique has had a the initial blog was released in 2018. Right. Um, and it worked up until December of 2019. So it was actually out there in the wild. And if we go to this blog, this PowerShell Empire with a trusted certificate, this has been out there for a long time. This blog, I think, has been out there for almost a year. So a lot of these techniques that we're going over, this one with uh, Druid, this one's been there for, let's say, uh, 2018, November. So a lot of these techniques have been around for a really long time. So it's not an issue that the world gets more secure whenever we come up with bypass techniques and then we share them with vendors because many of these techniques are actually configuration issues. So if we go back to the one that Jordan just got done talking about with the Microsoft Store, if you are allowing your users to access the Microsoft Store and download anything, that might be something that you want to restrict. If you're allowing your users to execute PS1 files, then that might be something you want to look into. So it's not like the vendor can fix this and make the vendor better. These are predominantly a whole bunch of configuration issues that our customers that we're seeing again and again and again, where they purchase the tool, they try to make the tool work with their environment, they reduce the overall security of the tool, and then an overall redu reduction of the security for their entire environment follows. So it's not an issue of just, this is a disclosure issue, like it would be an exploit. These are configuration problems. And all of these tools have these options so that their tool will run in your environment without breaking something essential. So that's kind of a long answer, but it's really getting into a philosophical uh, question. And sort of my, uh, my first in kind of exposure to this was I was doing a class for Sandia National Labs a number of years ago. And we had a bunch of systems administrators that were going through. And I was doing it in multiple days. I was running through groups of about 50 people through each class. And I would have class one, then class two, then class three. And I had a whole lab on antivirus bypass. And we did this lab on day one. One of the people completely freaked out and said, oh my God, there's an antivirus bypass for Symantec. We need to send this immediately so that they write a signature for it. They wrote a signature that night in my lab failed the second day, we made one small modification and it worked again. So it's not a matter of an Easter egg hunt where all the bypass techniques are detected and the world's now secure. It always comes back to, I think Dom uh, said it best, whenever you're looking at the critical security controls, that audit and control of your baselines of your workstations and what you have in your environment is absolutely essential. It's not about just running one tool and things being secure. So I hope that answered the question. If you could let me know. Um, if that answers your question in a long rambling sort of way, I'd appreciate it. So, all right, any other questions, Jason and CJ? We got some more, but I think we should wait to the end and, and I've got a few stored up. Sounds good. Is there any chance I'm gonna be able to talk? <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. 
No question there at all. All right, Josh. Any chance you won't talk. There you go. (laughs) Josh, take away. So uh, you you might as well go and advance the slide. So it's interesting. You know, there's been quite a lot of talk about PowerShell and download cradles. And the the reason for that is, is, is that despite what a lot of people think, you know, PowerShell's not dead. There, there was kind of a theme going around in the in the pen testing and attack community for a while. They're like, ah, oh, well, PowerShell's been fully instrumented. It's probably dead, and it probably doesn't work anymore. And it turns out that that's actually not true. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, you know, try to keep the scripts in memory is is something that I I generally adhere to. The the other is, as a couple of people in the questions have alluded to, downgrade attacks uh, with PowerShell still are prevalent and still will work, right? So in a lot of cases, in a lot of environments, you can actually execute PowerShell as version two. And by doing so, you're actually going to bypass some of the instrumentation that people have actually put in in place, things like script block logging, transcription logging, and and you know, and module logging, which is which is kind of interesting. So the first thing I present is something that actually I presented last year, and that is just using a simple web cradle. It's amazingly effective still. Uh, one of the techniques that I tend to use quite a lot when I use a download cradle is go ahead and just base64 encode the script. And if I have any trouble with that, with some sort of inline network appliance that actually steps in and blocks me, then I simply double base64 encode it, and 99% of the time it walks right around that inline network appliance that's that's stopping the download. Following that, it's just really a matter of decoding the script whether you need to decode it once or decode it twice and use an IEX cradle to get it into memory. Uh, and you've got a couple of things here. You've brought this, you've brought the script over the, over the, over the network. In a lot of cases, just with HTTP protocol, you don't need to get fancy. You don't need to do TLS necessarily. And secondarily, you've, you've not put a PowerShell script actually on the disk. You're just sticking into memory. So when we say, web cradle there is a question in the uh thing uh, in the uh in the questions there what i'm really meaning is create a system.net.web client object in memory and then just use powershell's native functionality to download the the base64 encoded string into a variable and then decode it into another variable and then use iex to actually execute that script so it's really quite a nice technique next slide please john So the next thing that comes up is AMC. Our friend AMC uh, in PowerShell 5 and up is is pretty powerful stuff, right? So if a, if a downgrade attack is not available to you, then you're going to need to try to bypass some of the AMC hooks that are going to be in place in a lot of environments. Now, it's amazing how many times I can do this with some relatively simple techniques. One of the simple techniques that I use is actually just to strip comments out of the PowerShell script. So if we go to the next slide, John, what I did was came up, came up with a very simple Python script on my Kali box or whatever generic Linux box you have, and I called it PowerStrip. Uh, and PowerStrip just goes through a PowerShell script, looks for any and all comments in the script, and just removes them and then writes a stripped version of the script back to disk, which I can then base64 encode and download into a cradle. Now, if you're interested in PowerStrip, it's a really simplistic Python script. It's worked amazingly well. My GitHub Yoda 66 uh, actually has PowerStrip on it. If you want to go out and find my GitHub, you can download that script. Uh, Probably will uh, enhance that script to do a little bit more obfuscation, and that is do things like put a double I on invoke or put a double G on get methods to make it a little bit more interesting, right? Something that uh, some people are saying in the comments, which I which I find is is interesting in the questions, is um, many folks have mentioned Daniel Bohannon's work, and Daniel Bohannon has done an excellent job at fully obfuscating PowerShell. The thing is, you just don't need to do that in many cases. You don't need to go that far. But I absolutely applaud that work. It's fantastic work, and it makes things really, really very obfuscated and gets around AMC most of the time. Next slide, please, John. 
So once we strip the script, we can go ahead and use our download cradle again, base 64. In this case, it was a real-time case when I ginned up these slides, I think last week. And uh, it was a full version uh, of latest, greatest PowerShell running on Windows 10. Downloaded PowerView, which is a well-known PowerSploit module for actually exploring environments in a post-exploitation context and absolutely executed in memory and I was able to run find domain share for example and do whatever I needed to do with that module and purely purely by stripping the comments out of the script now another thing that people don't often realize in next slide if you would John is that powershell enables you to import any .NET object into memory so if you were to write your own C# -sharp program. Um, this one is something that I came up with on the spur of the moment to demonstrate the, co uh, the concept. Um, you can see my super elite coding abilities here. I'm using console.writeline to write one line to the console in a class library with a class called class1, which happens to be the default uh, C-sharp class that's created, and a function called invoke. Now, once I compile that C-sharp program into a DLL, next slide, please, John, I can also base64 encode that and then download it in a PowerShell uh, cradle as well. And once I've downloaded that PowerShell encoded DLL as an assembly, I can create a new object from the class library class and sorry class library namespace and the class one object in memory and then i can directly call that dll assembly function dollar p dot invoke in this case so this gives you a unique ability it means that if you're able to put on your developer hat you can write any c sharp or in fact any net that you're familiar with it could be java it could be c it could be anything you can compile down into an assembly download it into a PowerShell cradle and invoke any particular namespace object and then any method within that object, which enables you to do some pretty unique and interesting things. Back to you, John. Hey, Joffer. What's, yes, sir. Somebody asked about what's the web cradle and what's a PowerShell cradle. Um, <laughs> so, um, so the, the, I call them the same thing, be honest. The, a web cradle, a PowerShell cradle, I probably misspoke there. Pretty much what I'm talking about is creating the .NET web client uh, object in memory and then using that object to download anything over HTTP protocol. The, uh, the good thing about doing that is that the object that you create not only is native to the system, but also there's yet another option that you can provide to set the default credentials if you are in a proxied environment so that the download will actually nicely go through the proxy as well if you do have a situation where you have either a WPAD configured proxy or a transparent proxy or perhaps uh, even a pre-configured proxy by virtue of group policy. So. You, you get the ability to, to get through the proxy uh, by virtue of using these uh, web cradles uh, created in PowerShell as well. So it's I really think, pretty good stuff. Yeah, you need to blog on that because I did a search on it. I found it came up empty. So it, it sounds like you kind of need to establish because right, that's like that useful. Get, yeah, it sounds like I need to get writing. So. Yep. Get, get on it. We had a question from DSFFDSDDDFSFFS, whatever. Um, it seems a bit overkill. Um, it seems like it might be more fruitful to look for PowerShell behavior, i.e. encoded commands and obfuscated PowerShell, than trying to block PowerShell completely. And uh, honestly, there's some truth to that, but it's also not that simple. Um, there's some truth to that in that there's tools out there by uh, Eric Conrad wrote a tool called Deep Blue CLI. And Deep Blue CLI does exactly that. So if you want to look through, if you have PowerShell logging enabled, you can go through your event logs and see if there's obfuscation in play, and it'll, of course, alert you on that. However, a lot of, and Joff, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of that ability to write signatures for odd PowerShell behaviors is really hard because of all the obfuscation, all the obfuscation techniques that are actually available to you, correct? 
Yeah, that is correct. That's absolutely true, right? It's it's a never-ending uh, game of chasing your tail. And you know, then if you take it even further and you decided to use a custom assembly, uh, then it's not even uh, it's not even PowerShell um, anymore. Plus, the other thing that you're going to get into is that if in an environment people leave the ability to perform a downgrade attack, um, dropping back to PowerShell version two, um, then all of the instrumentation that they might turn on, which is frankly helpful, things like script lock logging and transcription logging and module logging, that that instrumentation goes away if a is a if a downgrade attack is possible, uh, and so people do need to look at. Uh, eliminating earlier versions of PowerShell from that environment. And that is not just deleting executables, that's actually going in and carefully looking for the DLLs that are uh, pertinent to that earlier version and, and doing some very careful investigative work on how to disable it. Um, I don't have the particular details on that. Kent and, and, and Co and the systems crew might actually be more helpful there. Well, we have another comment. This is awful. This is just a bunch of people sitting around talking and making inside jokes. Nailed it. All right, uh, so uh, Dom, you had sent, uh, you said would a bypass technique get caught by the query I posted earlier? Dom, if you could repost that uh, uh, that query, that would be cool. I'd appreciate it. Could you detect web cradles based on the user agent strings on your WebFilter appliance? Now that's interesting because there is a specific user agent string for PowerShell, correct? Yeah, I believe there is a, a, a specific user agent string for PowerShell. If you want to take that further, I am pretty darn sure, I'd have to look it up because I haven't in recent history, but I'm pretty darn sure you can probably change that user agent string uh, as you create that web client object, uh, as you can also configure the credentials that are used for any proxying. So it's a, it's a highly configurable thing, but that's a, that's a good point uh, for low hanging fruit. You can possibly uh, uh, get a look at uh, PowerShell downloading things. Okay, so, and I think Dom's gonna get us that query here in a second. <laughs> evil ideas for my next engagement. That's good. Use it for the purpose of good. Evil, or for good, not evil. Hold on. Quick. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead, Jordan. I think is uh, was going to mention user agent strings. Yeah, there is definitely a user agent flag PowerShell invoke. Now, um, but most people wouldn't use that, so. There we go. All right, so Dom just posted a, uh, a PowerShell script, and hopefully someone can take a look at that. Um, if Jock could have a look at that, that was well. So Michael said, is this uh, webinar going to be viewable again? This was a lot of information very quick. Yes, uh, this is going to be posted to our YouTube channel, so you always see that as well. DSFDSFD said, I don't always change my user agent string, but when I do, I use Marcello was here, which is a good one. I like that one as well. Is there a good way to block PowerShell by default? And I think that that gets into kind of kiosk mode lockdown on workstations, trying to restrict access for your users to PowerShell. It also gets into the whitelisting and how you can actually invoke it as well. But it's still hard because we've seen situations where PowerShell is blocked, but simply renaming PowerShell to something like explorer.exe, now all of a sudden it's working again. And that's why it's not just an issue of trying to block a specific executable. And somebody posted this earlier. It really, really boils down to whitelisting and setting it up properly. And even whitelisting has bypass techniques. But most of these tools, I'd like to get the, the quorum's opinion. Whenever these tools are running, if whitelisting is not enabled, it's relatively easy to get past these tools. It's when they have whitelisting enabled, that's whenever the game gets much more interesting, correct? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll drop in there. That, that is absolutely correct, John. When, when whitelisting uh, is enabled, then you are back to um, totally, you know, living off the land and, uh, it makes things it makes things much more interesting, and that's why I, I'm I'm very interested personally uh, in using uh, a lot of .NET assemblies because whitelisting tends to be focused on executable content. Okay, now this is interesting. Joe said, "How about using Windows Firewall to block PowerShell from making outbound connections?" Now you can actually put in rules uh, with the Windows Firewall based on port protocol, but you can also restrict applications. And you can even go so far as to say that certain applications can only make connections to certain IP addresses. I think you could do that, but I still think you're back to the problem if somebody renames PowerShell.exe to something else, 
then the firewall rule will not trigger. You're basically trying a blacklist approach and all I have to be is not on the blacklist. So that's a, that's a good thing because I, I like the approach of thinking in terms of how you can creatively use the Windows firewall, but trying to use it just to black out or blacklist PowerShell might be, um, uh, might be a little bit more difficult. Somebody said, unrelated content warning. What's behind John? On my small screen, it looks like an old TV suspended from the ceiling with a cat lying on it. Nailed it. No, um, back there, uh, that's the studio. I'm recording a bunch of uh, videos that are under 10 minutes for a whole bunch of different tools and techniques. We've already released two of them. One of them for TCP dump, another one for Wireshark. I'm basically going through all the core uh, like security tools and the different capabilities that you should have as a defender to basically get your security career going. Some stuff that's on the on the works right now is we're developing a cyber range because God knows we need yet another cyber range, but I'm doing it backwards. So the idea is you'd come in, you'd get to a challenge, and then there would be hints, and the hints would take you to a video that's 10 minutes or less, kind of talking about the tool or technique that you need to use to solve that challenge. So that's what's being set up over there because my studio is not done yet. That's kind of where I'm, what I'm working on. There's no office cat. No, I'm sorry. There's no office cat. Ba -ba -da -ba -da -ba -da. Uh, possibly a JAW 3 for PowerShell is unique. So uh, JAW 3 is, uh, if you guys all, all want to check this out, this is pretty cool. It's basically a Bro plugin that can actually look at SSL handshakes and it can identify and fingerprint what the what the device or the application is. So yes, I'm absolutely sure there's got to be a JAW 3 signature uh, for uh, PowerShell as well. So renaming PowerShell.exe does not work in evasion networking logging. It still gets detected. And I would I would say, and Joff, I'd like you to jump in on this as well, or Jordan or Kent or Kelsey, that that's kind of the point, right? You don't rely on just one defensive technique to protect you. You need multiple techniques, correct? Yeah, I would I would absolutely agree with this. It, it's a belt and suspenders approach that you've got to take because you know what you're seeing here on this webcast just in general is you're seeing the tools tactics and techniques of one particular pen testing firm which are a collection of of uh crazy nut job people like me it, that doesn't mean that we're going to use the same techniques you know if you talk to partner firms you talk to other attackers they're going to have similar intent but they'll get there in different ways and so belt and suspenders is is definitely the way to think about it right it's always yeah try to spread the love and 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 think of multiple different ways that you can defend more i would say even more against the intent than the than the technique yep one last question i think this is a good one this is from weston probably a dumb question but when you're talking about whitelisting is that whitelisting by file hash i have seen some orgs just do whitelisting by executable name which will still allow you to use something like explorer.exe to bypass the whitelist. So most of these advanced products, they're using a combination of a number of different things to create an overall weight. So they'll take a look at what the functions are within the executable, the name of the executable, of course, and um, you know probably the digital code signing certificate for the executable. And they take all of that working in conjunction to make a determination as to whether or not this particular executable is evil. That is why you could for a while, and even on some EDR products, you can still do this. You can take a Windows executable and you can insert your malware into it with something like MSF Venom with the minus K option. And whenever the antivirus suite looks at it or the endpoint security suite looks at it, it says, well, this is a Microsoft executable. It has these different things and it's probably okay because it's signed by Microsoft or was written by Microsoft. And for a while, some of the bypass techniques for Silence a couple of years ago were taking PowerShell, which is blocked, and renaming it to Explorer. It's a Windows executable signed by Windows and its name is Explorer. It's got to be good, so allow it to execute. And the point of all of this is it's a lot more difficult to actually block execution of evil when that evil is using built-in libraries and executables on an operating system than many people would think. And that really goes back to the whole point again of why it is so important for everybody to validate and revalidate and test their configuration of their endpoint security products. So uh, somebody just pointed out, Dave said, John has a, an MP4 on his desktop called social media backdoors.mp4, and that's correct, I do. All right, I think we're at the top of the hour. Um, I think we're doing good. Jason, do we have any closing remarks uh, to close this particular webcast out? 
I would say, John, if you or any of the testers have anything to finish with, and then we'll go into the post-show once we kill the recording. All right. Just want to say thanks very much. I realize this is my first webcast in months. I haven't done any webcast in a really long time. So this is this is kind of cool to be back in the saddle again. And yes, this will be recorded and the recording will be saved. Uh, it will be shared out on YouTube. So sit tight for that. Yep. All right, everyone, thank you so much. We'll take a lot of the questions that were asked and add them to the blog that we post. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, you will get an email from us for attending this webcast. Uh, we'll have a link to it to where you can download these slides. So the slides will be downloadable and the video will be on YouTube. And we're gonna kill the recording and stick around for like the next five to 10 minutes. Keep answering questions. Uh, if everyone could turn their webcams back on. Thank you so much for being here and see you on the next one. Whew.